0: All right. Hey, well, good morning. And uh, as Jeff mentioned, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, or you can click over there on your device. Um, If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament right after Genesis. And so you can go there. And uh, while you're going to Exodus 12, I do want to welcome uh, everybody who's here uh, on campus today. Thanks for joining us. And I want to welcome uh, everybody joining us through our online campus too. And then uh, also uh, good morning to our Bluffton community location. We're super glad that you guys are a part of the family as well. Yeah, and so here's, I want to let this family know, Bluffton already knows this, but I want to let this family and our online campus know that uh, last week at Bluffton Community, uh, you guys got to celebrate your very first baptism uh, in their building. And so, uh, yeah, isn't that awesome? Like, that's great stuff. It's like, you know, God's doing stuff um, in your guys' location. So I think, if I remember right, there are actually some more uh, that are going to be coming soon too. So uh, absolutely incredible. And we're so jazzed for you guys. Now, I want you to take a moment and I want you to imagine for just a second, as best you can, I want you to imagine that you are living in ancient Egypt, okay? Uh, And and you're not like somebody awesome or incredible, you're not the pharaoh, Uh, you're not not even an Egyptian, okay? Uh, Actually, uh, you are with a group of people known as the Israelites, uh, the Hebrews. I want you to imagine that you're a Hebrew, an Israelite living in Egypt, Uh, and what that means is... Uh, you are a slave. Um, you are, uh, you know, you have no power. You have no control. Uh, you are under the authority uh, and the leadership of the Egyptian leaders, right? You work all day, each day, uh, building pyramids and Egypty kind of stuff that will be discovered thousands of years later, right? I imagine there's like initials carved in, you know, um, all that kind of good stuff. But uh, like I said, you have no power. And actually, uh, you have been slaves, your people have been slaves for centuries, actually a little over 400 years. Um, and so you, you remember, right, you remember your family telling stories of the great patriarchs of the past, uh, Abraham and Isaac, right, Jacob, uh, even Joseph, right, telling the story of, of how you came to Egypt and all of those things. But, but all of those stories are so far away. Right, they're so far removed. They're hundreds of years ago, and they almost feel almost like legend at this point. Right, but but they're floating out there, and then out of nowhere, this guy shows up. And he's kind of big, right, and uh, and he's got this like burly beard, and and he's got this stick. Kind of looks a little bit like Charlton Heston, right? Like you know, it just uh, you know. But he rolls with his brother Aaron. Uh, he goes by the name Moses. And he's just told your elders that God, right? Actually, Yahweh is going to set your people free. You're going to be free from Egypt, and you're actually going to leave Egypt, and you're going to go into the desert, and you're going to worship God, and you're going to live under his leadership and his care, okay? And so, as a slave, you're hopeful but you're not holding your breath, right? Because it's been like 400 years. This is just how life is. This is the way it works. This is how it goes. And besides, this is Egypt. And Egypt is very powerful. And Egypt has like a lot of gods. And actually, one of them sits on the throne, all right? He's he's here in person among, and so I don't know what this god's going to do and who can compete with that. But then, like these amazing things begin to happen. It's like water turns to blood, right? Uh, then also at the same time, you've got other things happening like frogs and gnats and flies just start to overwhelm the whole area, right? Then there's this moment where livestock begins to die, but it's only the Egyptian livestock, right? The, the Israeli, Hebrew, they're fine. And then, and then people start to develop things like boils on their body, but it's only the Egyptian people. That, that are struggling with this. And then you have issues with like hail and locusts, and even at one point the lights just go out, and it's dark, all right? And so every moment that is happening and, and that's taking place like this, it keeps getting closer and closer to this time where it seems like Pharaoh is going to release these Hebrews. But each time he changes his mind, and he doesn't. And that's when the questions start to rise in your mind. That's when the questions start to develop a little bit in your spirit, right? Questions like this. Is God actually going to free us from Egypt? Is, is he going to do that? Um, you know, because it seems like this is just taking too long. You know, I mean, come on, nine plagues? What is there, like a tenth plague? Uh, you, know, it's like, you know, it's just, I'm not sure what's happening here, but it just seems like it's taking way too long. And is God actually going to do this? And maybe the real question you're asking is not, is he going to, but the real question is actually, can he? Can God actually rescue us? Can God actually set us free from slavery? And I imagine these are some of the thoughts that could have been going through the, the, the minds and the hearts of these Hebrew slaves, right? And probably part of the reason uh, those are some of the thoughts and questions uh, I think they were thinking is because, quite frankly, those are some of the thoughts and questions I have thought at different times in my life, right? Maybe you, maybe you've asked those kinds of questions. Maybe you had those kinds of thoughts. Maybe you've had those kinds uh, of, of just wonderings going on in your, in your mind and your spirit, right? Questions like this. Will God forgive me if I ask him? If I pray and if I believe, would would God actually give healing? If I put all of my hope in him, and if I trust him, will he set me free from this sin that just keeps staring me in the face, like it's taunting me? Like, it's almost like it's mocking me, and no matter what I do, I can't overcome it, and I can't get away from it, because God do that. And, and maybe, maybe the real question isn't, is he? But maybe the real question we're asking is, can he? Is he able? Does he have capacity? Does he have the ability to do that? And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at the Bible to discover the answers to our questions. And let me say this. It is completely okay to come with questions. It really is. Uh, you don't have to come and and just like you know, do this download or something like that. But you can actually wrestle with the things that God puts in front of us, and I'm going to actually show you how we can wrestle uh, to wonder well, because God will respond. Now, before we jump into Exodus 12, uh, I want to briefly remind you: we are in a series called "Throwback: Seeing Christ in the Old Testament." I just want to walk everybody through uh, briefly what we talked about last week, which is essentially how do we how do we discover Christ in the Old Testament? How do we see him in the Old Testament? So there's kind of a four step uh, process within that, and the first step is just simply this. Read the passage and ask, what is God teaching right in real time, in real context? What was he doing? What was he revealing in the time and the context of when this moment happened? So we're going to be looking at Exodus 12, and we're going to talk about what was happening in Egypt in the lives of these Hebrews, and what was he revealing? So that's the first question you want to ask. What was God revealing in that time and in that context? The next question you want to ask is this. Does the New Testament have anything to say about this moment or this topic. Okay? Does the New Testament have anything to say about this moment or this topic? A third question you want to ask is this, uh, how is Christ present in the Old Testament passage, right? How's old, how is Christ uh, present in the Old Testament passage and the last one is how am I going to respond to this? Because th- this is that's the real crossover moment, right? Like it's one thing to have new information uh, it's one thing to see things that are kind of interesting that you weren't able to see before or really affirming about who God is and his character. It's a whole another thing to then say, okay, how am I going to respond to this truth? How am I going to respond to the character of God? And that's where you want to land in this discussion. And this is just kind of a basic way to see Christ in the Old Testament passages because you have to know that he is the key to understanding all of Scripture. And so if you throw away the key, you actually throw away understanding to the Scripture. You cannot fully grasp, you cannot fully understand, you cannot know what God is really doing and accomplishing if you remove Christ out of the Scripture. And so let's read some portions of Exodus 12. We're going to start uh, in verse 1, and we'll jump at one moment, but I'll let you know when we're going to jump. So this is what it says. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with the version that you have, and it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. This is important. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Mm. And you, <laughs> I'm just reading it. I didn't set the menu. Um, and you shall let uh, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, um, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. I'm going to jump to verse 28. Verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did, so the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they left them... Excuse me, they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because... They were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel uh, Israel throughout their generations. Now, Before we dive into uh, some of the discussion there of what's going on and what he's revealed in this moment, uh, I want to pause for a second because some of you are actually still stuck back on verse 1, and you're asking the question, how did God talk to Moses? Because it says the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, right? But how did he talk to them in this? what, What was it? How did he speak to them? And, and so the short answer is simply this, we don't exactly know, all right? That's the scholarly answer, if you want me to be really straightforward. We're not one, because the Bible doesn't explicitly say, but we can know this. If you look back in Exodus chapter 3, you actually see that Moses is out in the desert, and God speaks to him through this burning bush, okay, this bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up, and, and a voice comes from this bush, and so that seems to be, I imagine that's an audible voice where God really captured Moses' uh, attention, right? And and then my thought is this, as you begin to look throughout uh, the book of Exodus, you see that God is continually speaking to Moses. And and we don't know if that's always an audible voice that Moses could hear. Maybe Maybe it was in his mind and in his spirit. Maybe there were really strong impressions in his spirit. But I would imagine this. That over time, the more that God spoke to Moses, the more Moses came to recognize God's voice, that it didn't always have to be this booming voice from the cloud, this voice from a burning bush. but that the more God spoke to Moses, the more Moses began to recognize God's voice in those moments. But either way, however it was that God had spoke to Moses, he did. And what's equally as important, not only that God spoke to Moses, but that Moses responded with obedience to what God had said to him. That's equally as important as the fact that God spoke to Moses, right? Because acting in obedience is actually the natural outflow of hearing God's voice. And so that begs the question, right? What was God saying? What was he revealing in this moment in Exodus 12? I think he's revealing a lot of things, but I want to focus in on three just for this morning, um, and then you'll see where we land. But the first thing I want to bring out here is uh, God really reveals his sovereignty, okay? God reveals he was in Exodus 12, and he is to us today, revealing his sovereignty. Now, maybe that word is a little foreign to you, And you're kind of going, sovereignty, I'm not really sure if I'm with you on that. Let me just give you a basic definition when you hear the word sovereignty in regards to who God is and what that means for him. But God's sovereignty is basically this, is that God has absolute authority and power over all of creation. He created it, it belongs to him, he has the capability and the authority to do whatever he wants, and he does. (laughs) right? That's what we're talking about with God's sovereignty, okay? So basically, God calls the shots, and he can actually do it, right? That's very different from me and my family, where I call the shots, and nothing happens, right? (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. Um, But... no, so, so God is sovereign. And, and so you see his sovereignty in this moment. And one of the, one of the reasons this jumps out so clearly to me is in verses one and two, but then also in verse 14, it's absolutely like just, it grabs my attention that God told Israel, excuse, excuse me, told Israel that you're going to annually remember, you're going to annually commemorate, you're going to annually celebrate a moment that hasn't even happened yet. I mean, think about that, right? You, you are going to set up an annual m- memorial to this moment that hasn't even taken place. It, that's not the way it works in our world, right? Like nobody ahead of time is going, to, you know, July 4th, 1776, that's going to be a big one, <laughs> You're right? Everybody mark it, 1777. Nobody's saying that in June, right? But, but yet here you have God, Before the moment even happens, saying, this is going to be an annual remembrance for you. This is going to be big. This is going to be massive, right? And I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to begin to mark who you are. You're going to find out so much about who I am as a result of this moment. You are going to remember this, right? Because I'm not sure how you do it. But in, in where I come from, we usually mark events after they've taken place. Not before, because we don't even really know how it's going to go. That speaks to the sovereignty of God, right? That speaks to the fact that God has the capacity and the authority to cause his will to come into being even before it's even started to take place, right? That's sovereignty here. And and to me, it just seems like it's blown up, Massive on the big screen just in that moment, not to mention all of the other places that it's there clearly. But that's the first thing. God's revealing his sovereignty. The second thing, as he's revealing his sovereignty to Israel, God is also making clear to them that they can trust him. Not only am I sovereign, not only am I capable, but you can actually trust me. And he's inviting them to trust them, right? He gives the Israelites really, really clear instructions on how to prepare for this first Passover moment, right? He's very, very specific about what he wanted, right? He said, you are going to choose a male lamb. If you can't get a lamb, we'll let you have a kid, Right? Goat, all right, not like a person kid. Uh, you know, some of you guys eyeballing your kids. Uh, but, uh, right, so you can choose, like, this, one, this one-year-old uh, male lamb uh, to, to use. Uh, by the way, there have to have no blemishes, right, like no imperfections, nothing like that. Four legs, not five, right, like everything, you know, all that kind of stuff, it, it's got to be pretty much perfect. Can you, can you imagine for a moment going around looking for this lamb? going around looking for this goat. If you remember at the end of Exodus 12, you see how many people are leaving Israel. It's like over 600,000, just the men. And then you have men and women, or excuse me, they have women and children in there as well. So it's like you're talking well over a million people. And you've got all these households looking for unblemished lambs or goats. Can you imagine the search going on for that? Right, the, like just frantically thinking, where, where did I see that last one? You know, oh, this one's no good; it's got a pimple. Oh, no, you know, I can't do that. You know, all all of the whatever is on there. You can't do it. You know, the anxiety, the exhaustion, the, all of that. Finding for this lamb. Can you imagine the joy, of of finding it, finally? There it is. We've got it. Right. All of those things. But every family has got to select this lamb. And we're not just talking like 10 or 12. We're probably talking tens of thousands of lambs and goats for a little over a million people, right? That's a lot. But you gotta, each family has to select this lamb on the 10th day with plans to kill it at twilight on the 14th day. Do you know, do you know what twilight is? I'm not talking about sparkly vampires. Okay, that's not, what, it's not where we're going here at all. But twilight, literally what twilight is... Right, <laughs> If you're over 40, you're like, what? Sparkly <laughs> vampires. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, t- t- twilight is this. Literally, this is the time of day. The sun has set. You cannot see the sun anymore. But its light is still somewhat visible, though it's failing. That's twilight. Okay? That's, that's, what, that's what twilight is. And so you're killing it at this very specific moment of the day. Right? And then after killing this lamb, you're going to take the blood and you're going to paint it on the doorpost, essentially covering your family uh, and your household with the blood. And then you're going to eat uh, this, this lamb uh, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, uh, all this stuff. And then finally, none of the lamb can be left over by the morning. It all has to be gone. And then there's another provision a little bit later. It says, and, and, and while you're doing all this, uh, make sure all of the bones remain unbroken. Right? So, you've got all of these specifications going on in this process. And, and, you, and you have to see that what's going on here is that God is making the point that the death of this lamb is going to be the substitute for the death of your firstborn son. That if you follow these provisions, this will actually, right? Because something's going to die. Either this lamb is a substitute, or if you don't do this, your firstborn son is going to die in this moment, okay? And so every family that did not have this blood on the doorpost, every family that did not follow God's instructions, right, would experience the death of their firstborn son, even the death of the, li- the firstborn of their livestock, right? Now, what you and I have to understand is this, that we might not fully catch, is that the firstborn represents like the hope of a family. The firstborn son represents the hope of a family because this is the one who is going to be the primary heir, right? In that culture, this is going to be the primary heir who, who when, when the father is no longer capable, uh, he will step in as the leader of the family, right? And so the firstborn son represents the, the hope of the family, the firstborn son, represents the vigor and the strength of the father, right? The firstborn son is going to be the one who steps in to take leadership of the family when the father no longer can, okay? And so you have to see what God is saying is if you don't put your hope in me, you'll actually end up losing the thing you put your hope in the most. I, I want to be the one you put your hope in. And so I'm making a way for you to have a substitute in this regard. But either way, every family is going to be faced with death. You're either going to face the death of a substitute or you're going to face the death of your firstborn son. And so God invited Israel to trust him by following him in his instructions and with obedience, right? And those who did were rescued from death. This This is a little bit ironic. They're rescued from death through death. And if you didn't trust God, then you suffered the consequences of that death, right? So after 430 years under slavery, God freed Israel through this Passover moment, right? And it became clear to everyone. And it becomes clear to us as we're reading this, right? This is the third thing, right? He's sovereign. He invites us to trust him. And the third thing that's revealed in this moment is God is capable to accomplish his plan. God actually, right? He doesn't even claim, he doesn't only claim sovereignty. He actually has it. He can accomplish his plan. And so through his voice to Moses, through his instructions to Israel, through his follow-through on his plan, God freed Israel. After 430 years under slavery, God set them free. And no one was going to doubt anymore whose God was real. Whose God was most powerful? Whose God was the true king? Because the gods of Egypt, every one of those plagues are this clear opposition to a god of Egypt, and you see that God has authority over every single one of those other gods, and finally, right, over the god who sits on the throne. Because if he's a true god, and he has real power, then he would have the capacity to oppose what God has done, and yet he can't, right? He can't. And so this, these gods of Egypt were crushed under the weight of this moment, and the god of the Bible showed his power. The God of the Bible freed his people, and the God of the Bible revealed one more step in his plan of salvation for all of time and all of history. And this moment actually ends up becoming, just as God said it would, ends up becoming the bedrock of Israel's faith. As they're going forward, they're always looking back to the Passover, they're always going back, right? They're telling their kids. They're telling their kids' kids. They're telling generation after generation of everything that God has. in. do you remember when? Let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what God did. No one else could do what God did. You know, here it was. You know, it was the gods of Egypt, and it was, it was our God. It was Yahweh, right? It was Pharaoh, and it was Yahweh. There we were, red Sea. Nobody thought we were going to get through. And God came through in a remarkable way. But this became this crystallizing moment that God showed his faithfulness that he's sovereign, that he can be trusted, and he actually does have capacity to accomplish his plan. And so that's what God is teaching in that moment. So the next question we ask is, well, does the New Testament say anything about the Passover or about this moment or about this topic? And the answer is this, uh uh-huh. (laughs) A lot, Uh, right? Like he shares, uh, the New Testament has a lot to say about this. Now there's uh, over 30 explicit references to the Passover in the New Testament, and then there's like countless allusions that are pointing to the Passover without explicitly saying this is the Passover. Um, We're not going to read through all 30 plus of those, but there is one that I think we've got to draw attention to that is like really, really crystal clear and you can't miss it at all. Uh, it's actually found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And what that passage says, this is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, what Paul says on the second half of that verse um, is really, really clear. You can't miss it. He says this for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You, c- you can't miss it, right? It's, it's like blatant. There's almost a love where it's like, I don't know what else to say, right? Like it's, it, it doesn't need a lot of elaboration. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. Paul is just saying right here, Christ, who is our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, right? And so what I'd like to do, maybe rather than me elaborating on this, what I'd like to do is actually go through the New Testament, just a couple of passages, and let the New Testament make the case, okay? Now, in the process, I want you to remember you write just really briefly all of the qualifications for the Passover lamb, right? The the substitute for the firstborn son, the one who is going to step in in place for our death, right? And so here's all the qualifications. Uh, it's got to be a male. It's got to be a lamb or a goat. Uh, it's got to be one year old, no blemishes. Killed at twilight on the fourteenth day. It's got to be eaten. Uh, nothing left over in the morning. None of the bones broken in the process. And you're going to paint the doorpost with the blood of the lamb, essentially covering your family, okay? Those are the qualifications of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. And what I'd like to do is just walk through a couple of passages with you. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, we see this moment uh, when John the baptizer sees Jesus. He says, the next day he, meaning John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God, who does what? takes away the sins of the world. And so John the baptizer referred to Jesus as God's lamb. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, this writer says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without... There's no sin. He's sinless. There's no blemish. There's no imperfections in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 19, verse 36, if you're reading it on its own, you might go, oh, this is kind of a weird verse that pops in. I'm not quite sure why it's there. But that scripture tells us that not one of his bones will be broken. Right? Talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that in all of the beating, in all of the humiliation, in all of the mockery, being nailed to the cross, not a single one of his bones were broken. Right? John makes that point really clear. Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, actually tells us about the exact time of Jesus' death in chapter 23, verse 44 and 45. He said, it was now about the sixth hour, by the way, which is noon. Let me ask you this question, uh, if, you know, not in northwestern Ohio, but in like, regular parts of the world, where is the sun? <laughs> you know, it's out. <laughs> it's like at the height, baby. There's no clouds covering that bad boy, right? And so in this, at, at six hours, noon. But it says this, about the sixth hour, there was... Darkness over the whole land until about the ninth hour, from noon till three, when the sun is typically at its brightest and its hottest, darkness is taken over. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, what Luke is telling us is from 12 to three, when the sun should be the brightest, actually it's blocked. You can see some of the light, but it's dark, and this light's failing. Literally in the middle of the day, twilight is taking place. In John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus said of himself, talking to people, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Right? So at that moment, He lost a number of followers in that process, by the way, because they were like, That's gross. And they left, and they did not understand the connection that Jesus was making here. Uh, Peter, in, in uh, the first letter First uh, Peter, he refers to being covered in Jesus' blood, the Lamb, without blemish. This is verse 18 and 19 in 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then finally, Paul points to Jesus as our substitute, that in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so when you look at, and and again, there's, there's, there's many, many more references in the New Testament to this but you can see clearly that Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us. Now, before you get really excited and you go, wow, that, look at that, that's incredible. Jesus fits all of the qualifications of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. Clearly, clearly you can see, wow, this, look at how God has lined all this up. See, if you go that route, you, you actually misunderstand what God has done here in Exodus 12, okay? It's it's not that Jesus fits the qualifications of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. That's actually not it at all. It's actually the reverse. Actually, what happened is because God was the solution, or excuse me, because Christ was the solution from before the creation of the world even began, that he would be the one who would solve our sin finally and ultimately, and that God was going to come in Christ as he did What God did was made sure that in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb completely represented the final Passover lamb who was yet to come. That's what's actually happening here. It's not that Christ fit the qualifications of the Passover lamb. It's actually that the Passover lamb fits the qualifications of Christ pointing ahead to him because he's the final He's the ultimate. He's the one who solves sin and death for all time. Because Jesus was sinless. Because Jesus would not have one broken bone. Because Jesus would be killed at twilight. Because Jesus' blood is the only one who could save us from death. Because Jesus would be our substitute. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12 had to be all of those things. Pointing ahead to the plan that the sovereign God already had in place. What's interesting though, God did not provide a substitute in order to save his firstborn. Actually, see, many times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn son of God, even though he's co equal with God in every way. He's fully God, right? But he's referred to many times as a firstborn. God did not have a substitute to save his firstborn son but rather he gave as the substitute his firstborn son Jesus right so that we could be rescued he gave the hope of the family he gave the vigor of the father he gave the authority right the leadership of the family Jesus died to give you hope Jesus died to give you life Jesus died to give you future this is what he's done. This is what the scriptures are pointing to. And so, and so the question is, do you see? Do, do you see how deeply God cares for you? Do you see how deep, how God has literally orchestrated everything all of time and space and history, even events down to minute details, so that you could catch a glimpse of his overwhelming love for you, all right? He did all of this to rescue you from death. Why? so you can be with him, so you can be with him, that's what it is, because he cares for you and he loves you, he's given himself, he's given the very best to save you, and so now what that means is you and I don't have to go through the anxiety of searching for an unblemished lamb that we would sacrifice at exactly twilight and cook and eat the head and the innards, by the way, (laughs) don't forget that. You don't have to go through any of that. And so Jesus Christ, the firstborn son, the spotless lamb, the substitute who needs no substitute, became our substitute. He became our Passover lamb. He died in our place. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly shed his blood. He died so you could live, so I could live without him you won't be passed over by death. You have to know that. And so Jesus actually goes further than the Passover because you have to see that the first Passover lamb actually only solved the guilt of sin. It actually did nothing to solve the power or the presence of sin. See, that's where Jesus goes a step further. Not only does he solve the guilt of sin, right? He solves the power of sin, and one day he's going to fully solve the presence of sin. Of sin, where it literally won't even exist in God's presence ever again, in His creation ever again, right? And so the true Passover lamb, the better Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the firstborn, solves all of that. Because not only does He declare you and I innocent and forgiven, but actually He goes a step further and He puts His spirit inside of every single person who actually says yes to Jesus Christ and He takes the outside work to the inside. And the outside God becomes an inside God and He begins to reshape our thinking. He begins to change our thought patterns. He begins to transform our priorities and what is most valuable to, they're no longer shaped by the culture of our world and in opposition to God, but they're increasingly coming into alignment with God's values. They're coming into alignment with God's character. We're becoming more and more like him, right? And like Moses, he actually gives you the ability to begin to hear God's voice through Scripture, you begin to hear God's voice through prayer. You begin to hear God's voice through the counsel of other growing disciples. Right? Like, remarkable. You don't need a burning bush. <laughs> right? You have, you have God's spirit living within you. And so let me say this. If, if, you're, if you're not a Christian yet, I, you, you have to know this. Is you, you don't, right? You, you do not have to experience death for yourself. You don't have to. Right? Because Jesus, the Passover Lamb, has actually already died as your substitute. He's already taken care of that. So that you don't have to do that because you're not going to survive it anyways on your own. And so what do we do with that? What do we respond? Well, it's simply this. It's to trust him. It's what he was talking about in Acts twelve, recognizing his sovereignty, that he is the true king, he's the creator over everything. Right? And and he invites us to trust him then. He invites us to trust him now. to place all of my hope in his person, to place all of my hope in his work, to place myself under his leadership, under his authority, that he's the king and I belong to him. He's the father, I'm the son. He's the father, you're the daughter, right? And, And we walk with him and we live with him and we enjoy him and we step back into who we were always created to be. Creations under his care, under his leadership. And God has done all this for you so that you and I can be with him. And let me say this, everything I'm sharing with you is actually found right here. Seriously, it is. Everything I'm sharing with you is actually found right here. And so if you're still searching, if you're looking for the God of uh, the God that we're talking about this morning, he's found in here. You actually discover him in here. He's, you, know, you, can, you can catch inklings. Oh, I was just having a conversation with somebody this morning. If you're out in, in creation, you can't, you can't miss him. Yeah, I mean, it's clear. You look at the beauty of this world, and, and it's remarkable what he's done. And it's clear. And yet that knowledge is not enough to bring you... Right to bring you uh, to, to save you from death. Actually, if you want to know the true character of God and everything is accomplished, it's found in here. And so you jump into the Bible if you want to discover Him more. And so I would encourage you this way: whether you're a Christ follower or you're kind of investigating this whole thing, you're not even really sure where you stand on this whole God thing. I would encourage you to do this: is, is if you haven't already, take the step that Josh and Jeff were talking about earlier today, and sign up for a Lighthouse Group. Okay. And and this is not like, you know, oh, you probably get like something if you get enough people sign up. No, (laughs) nobody gets anything because enough people sign up. What it is, is lighthouse groups are actually one of the most pivotal ways to discover the character of God with other believers and to take steps of growth. That's why we believe in them so deeply. And we, we really want every single person to join a group. And so let me just do this very quickly. Um, if, you're, if you're on campus here, if you're at Bluffton Community, uh, you should have been gotten that blue connection card. I want you to, everybody find that, grab that, pull that out, look over on the back. There's a place on there that's where you can sign up for our group. Just very simple, very easy. And even if you're going, I don't know which one to sign up for, just choose one for me. We can do that. We love playing group roulette. Uh, that is a blast um, but you know we'll we'll help you get into the right group but uh, do that if you're online uh, go to our website mylighthousecommunity.com. Uh, about two-thirds of the way down there's a link where you can sign up for groups I so encourage you to go there right now take a look at the 17 different groups um, that you can sign up for and let me encourage you to jump into one if you've never been to one that may be one of the things that's freaking some of you out you're like I've never been to one I don't want to go to somebody's house. I don't know everybody. What's going to happen? Like, are they going to ask me to do weird things? Am I coming out with a tattoo? You know, like all of this stuff. Last question, yes. Um, You know, but you have all these questions. So let me walk you through if you've never been to one. Here's what happens you show up. Some happen at some people's house, some happen right here in this building, other places, stuff like that. But you show up, and what happens is people like warmly greet you and they're excited that you're there. And usually what happens is there's like already food out or you've brought food with you. And so immediately you're like, you know, putting things in your mouth. So if you're not sure what to say, like you just, just keep, you know, like COVID-19 was hard for me, right? Like, cause <laughs> you know, like just, come. Uh, but anyways, um, so you go, you show up, you have food, you laugh, you catch up on the week and what's going on. And then there's this moment where everybody kind of gathers together in one place and, and somebody usually uh, just simply prays. Just ask to open up hearts and minds to the, Holy, uh, to the Holy Spirit and to what the Scriptures would say, and then somebody or a couple of people might read a passage from the Bible, and then what happens next is pretty remarkable. You know what happens next? People start talking about the Bible. People start talking about God. They start pointing out things that they go, oh, I'm noticing this. You know what else happens? People start asking questions. Hey, this says this. I'm under, is this what that means? Or am I understanding that? Right? That's, that's what happens. We're just having discussions. We're talking about stuff. And then we'll start talking about, okay, how does this, what does this mean for us? How do we trust God? How do we love God? How do we? All of those things. And then there's a moment where the group begins to pray for one another. Not everybody's required to pray. But if you want to pray, you can. If you don't want to, that's all right. We pray for one another. And you know what happens after the prayer? More food. <laughs> right and you eat and you laugh and before you know the time's over and people are driving home and they're like i cannot wait until next week i love those people you heard cole say it on the video these people are my family they're not people i go to group with they become my family i love them and they love me and so let me say this if that grabs your attention and you're like man i could use to be around something like that don't leave today without signing up for a group right Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Matt, Jeff, Josh, anyone. Most of us are in a group. We will help you get into one, right? If you're online, if you're at Bluffton, don't leave. Don't log off until you sign up for a group. It's a great decision. Great, great decision. Because maybe you're asking questions, right? Maybe you're wondering, will God forgive me? Does God forgive for things like this and that and this thing I remember and this mindset? and all of those things? Maybe you're wondering, if I begin searching for the God of the Bible in the Bible, will I find him? Or will my hopes just fall under the weight of nothing? Maybe you're asking the question, if I put all my hope in him, if I put all my trust in him, will he actually free me from my sin that's staring me in the face? And I can't, seem to shake it. I feel like it's taunting me. It's there every time I look. Will he? Maybe the real question you're asking is, can he? Is he capable? Is he powerful enough? Can he do it? And the answer is this. In Christ, yes. (laughs) In Christ, the answer to all those questions is yes, right? Christ, the Passover lamb, has rescued you from death and now you can live the life that you were always created to live. To know God, to love God, to enjoy him and rely on him forever. That's what Christ has accomplished. I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We ask this question every weekend at Lighthouse Community and it's simply this. Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? And I want to give you a moment just to listen to what God may be saying to you. Father in heaven, I praise you. everything you've accomplished. I praise you that you are sovereign. I praise you that you can be trusted. I praise you that you have the ability to accomplish your plan. I praise you that you have already selected and solved our issue with the true Passover lamb, the better Passover lamb. Thank you for pointing us ahead to that which was still to come in Exodus 12. Thank you for bringing to fullness fully revealing the person of Christ and everything is accomplished, that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us in our place, that we don't have to live separated from you anymore. We can actually live with you. And when we say yes to you, you actually put your spirit within us. And that's a a confirmation that we do belong to you. And so I would pray for any of my friends here this morning online at Bluffton that are still wondering, can I trust this God? And I pray through the Holy Spirit, you would affirm to them, yes. Overwhelmingly, yes. Through the testimony of other believers, we would say, yes. You can trust him. He's good. He can accomplish everything he says he can accomplish and more. Let us live with that kind of faith. And I would pray for any person you are inviting to cross that line and to take that step today that they would say yes, even now. If they're on campus, if they're online, if they're Apple, they would just say yes right now and know that they can trust you. And I want to pray for all my brothers and sisters in Christ to know that we have the greatest news ever to be shared. And I pray your Holy Spirit, not under guilt, not under the weight of condemnation, not to like try to beat out somebody else, but out of the pure joy, the overflowing joy of knowing what the Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb has done in us and for us that we would go and we would tell other people of all that's been accomplished on our behalf and in us as well. We love you, we worship you, we want to walk with you forever. Your God, your king, your Alpha and Omega, you are Yahweh, and we bless your name. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ and everyone said, Amen. Thanks for joining us.